What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to Nightmare Success in and Out Podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares to set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys I was in Leavenworth with and others who served time in other prisons. We're going to be talking about life before prison, life in prison, life out of prison. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you've built up in your own mind. Okay, folks, here we go. So if anybody listened to Dion, Dion's podcast, Dion Sebasis, uh, he as we were talking afterwards, Dion said, oh, man, you got to talk to Jim Brock. He, Jim, Jim's just got it going on. He's only been out a little bit. And just to give you guys a, a, a quick rundown of Jim Brock, Jim had a 25-year sentence, served 20 years of that, that sentence, 80% of it. Um, he was a in high school, was a first-team all-state soccer player at Lindbergh High School. Uh, he actually learned how to train dogs in prison, which is actually a skill that he's using now. We'll talk about that. He is a graduate from Washington University. He is a graduate from Washington University, bachelor's degree, and we're going to talk about that and what's, what that's meant for him and how he's, he's uh, used that kind of just as, as a stepping stone of all the other things that he's doing. Um, and the other thing that I think it's going to be interesting we talk about, he got some really bad news that he was going to go 25 years to a sentence, but he also got some bad news about his son and how he handled that. Uh, with his son being a three-time cancer survivor and has, has a story of his own and goes out and speaks, which is just inspiring in itself. So, everybody, I want you to welcome in Jim Brock. Jim, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Your story is incredible. Um, you know, it's just, and we were just talking about this, Jim and I were, you know, about the stories and, and what, what do we want to get out of these stories. And a lot of times when I think about it is it's it's for – Anybody who feels like they're stuck, they can't grit themselves to take a next step because it's that unknown, it's that fear, it's that whatever that is, you feel it in your gut. But if you step into it, you feel a little bit better, you step a little bit more, you feel, and then by the third step, you feel a little bit more confident and you start to get to where you want to go. Jim, that's, that's really what you have done you know, in the last 20 years of how you've done it, let's step back a little bit. Um, did you were an athlete? You were a kid that people knew about. Tell me a little bit about your story growing up as you know, your family. What was Jim doing as a kid? Well, I grew up with my mother. Yeah. Um, and my sister. And never, I never even knew who my father was. And so he was not in your life at all. He wasn't in my life, and I had no idea who he was. He left. My sister's a year older than me, a year and four days older than me. He left when my mom was pregnant with me. And it was always an unknown to me. Did you guys talk about it as a family? Um, I mean, was it strange I think, to you? I think you? my mom was hurt by it, so it really wasn't a topic. You didn't topic. want to talk about it. It really wasn't a topic. And my mom, she she just worked hard. Yeah. And she worked two, three jobs to raise my sister and I. I mean, I had a I had a pretty good childhood. My mom worked hard to get us into the best schools. What'd she do? 
when she was working? Well, she ended up having a house cleaning business. Okay. And, that is hard work. In the beginning, she worked for an insurance company for years, and then she started her own business. So she's an entrepreneur. Yes. And she worked real hard and was successful successful at it. And she, I mean, it was a pretty normal childhood, at least I thought. But as we're talking, you'll find out that that kind of unknown kind of just was setting me up for all the trouble that I got in. Because mm-hmm. I was carrying around a lot of anger from not knowing my dad and my mom working all the time. And my sister and I were pretty much, my mom didn't really, she had rules for us, but she wasn't there to enforce the rules. Mm-hmm. And I just turned out a little wild. I didn't have the rules that my other friends had. And that's that's pretty much how I grew up. Did it, Well, you got into being a really good athlete. Was that an escape for you or was that where you, or is that how you, <laughs> you let out your aggression <laughs> of what was going on with the it, soccer? And, it it and, was, it, yeah. it really wasn't soccer. It was baseball, baseball for years growing up. My mom did get me into sports. Yeah. I started out at the boys club in St. Louis and she's, that used to be my babysitter. My mom would drop me off there or sometimes even at six years old, we lived out on Nebraska and South city and I would get on the by state and go down to boys club and I would stay down there. And I just started playing all the sports, basketball games, swimming. Yeah. But baseball was my thing. And I hated soccer. <laughs> That's I, funny. I actually hated you soccer. You know what's funny about that, Jim, is that I grew up in Springfield, Missouri. So, and, and I love sports and, Soccer really wasn't around in Springfield. Now it is now. I mean, obviously, but yeah. when I moved up to St. Louis as a as a fourteen year old kid, going as a going to uh, high school, it was all over the place. I was like, "Wow, where did this come from?" But yeah, I never got into soccer so much because I didn't grow up as a as a younger kid playing soccer. But man, when I moved to St. Louis, I realized that this was a big world of soccer up here. Yes. So you were baseball. What did you like to play in baseball? I was a pitcher. Pitcher, of course. Yeah. And uh, I think it was – my mom got into a marriage. She met a met a guy. He, she was married for probably about four years. Yeah. And I have a stepbrother that I'm still real close to, great guy. But when they got divorced, we moved out to the South County area from Jefferson County. And we moved in these apartments in the Lindbergh School District. And right next to me in the apartment – was Eric Delabar, who is real well-known for soccer. And him and his wife were running Concord, which is now Veta up in yeah. South County. And I met him one day. I don't kind of a sports factory here in St. Louis. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how I met him. He used to play goalie for the Steamers. Yeah. He was Slobo's backup. A lot of people in St. Louis know Eric Delabar. But he kind of he became my mentor, and he, he brought me up to that facility and I just looked at the turf fields, and I started playing. I started. He, he was, he was having me coach little kids. He was having me work up there, and then he was starting to get me involved in leagues up there. And this was eighth grade, and I started out as a goalie, but soccer just took over. I everything was about soccer at that point, and he was kind of leading me and. Then freshman year, I made the freshman team as a goalie. 
and that, that wasn't enough action for me, so I went out on the field. And, but anyway, um, we, we stayed pretty close, Eric and I. I think it's, you know, the, it's interesting, though, Jim, because having a mentor at that age and, and not having a dad – how that all worked out. Somebody's trying to get you. Somebody yeah. is listening to the program and saying, I got to talk to Jim Brock right now. <laughs> <laughs> but no. Uh, but I mean, how, how essential was that for you at that time to, to roll into somebody that, and then you, you kind of attached yourself to that. Yeah. What, what, what age were you? 14? Yeah, I was 14, 15. Yeah. But at that same time i was still dealing with all this anger. anger and built up yeah as a as a kid you don't really realize it i just thought you know i was just you just thought you were angry but you you didn't know what was manifesting yeah. that yeah and i can remember when my sister had an older boyfriend and he came over to the apartment one day and a friend of mine was over there and he bought us a little two pint little bottles of peppermint schnapps. Mm -hmm. And I took that first drink. And, man, it was just like I felt like a different person. Mm -hmm. Like all – it just felt like a whole weight was Release. lifted off. Like a – yeah. And that's when drinking just kind of – So that really did become your release. So when you were – Becoming this athlete that was a first-team All-State, were you also just deep into it all, drinking, whatever? Yeah, well, you know, it just started out as the parties, you know, on the weekends. Yeah. And then uh, later on, it, you know, sometimes before school. Yeah. And it just started escalating. Mm -hmm. And then, like uh, – I guess we did you feel like though, Jim, that it was an issue, or did you just feel like this is just kind of normal? I'm just doing my thing. Yeah, I'm just drinking with everybody else. Yeah, yeah. but coming to find out what I know now, it was affecting me mm -hmm. different because it was having me. You know, I was being destructive. I was staying out late. I was lying to my mother. I was, you know, doing all them those things, and mm -hmm. just lying to people, and just. Just felt like a really bad person. You did. Yeah. You felt like a really yeah. bad person. So let's let's go into the fact that you you were do you were kinda of, I had to have been really known for your soccer because you don't become a first team all stater unless you are um good. I mean you gotta be good at what you were doing. I was okay. You were okay. I was okay. 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 I was I mean I, I I could compete. Yeah. 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 I mean I just I I know that as an athlete, when you get on the first team, I don't care if it's Metro or State, you're pretty good because you got to – I mean, th that's the best of the best that get ranked in that. But you fall off that pedestal. So can you walk me through that on how that all went down for you and, and then where that led you? Well, I hated school. Yeah. I hated – A lot of getting, kids do. I hated getting up in the morning, and like I said, I didn't really – my mom was working so much that I, you know, I started skipping school and just fell behind. Yeah. And I guess it was the year that end of summer after I got first team. Um, my, I think it was my soccer coach gave me a call and said, 
you don't have the credits to play next year. I said, well, I'll just go to summer school because I've been to summer school before. Yeah. He's like, summer school's not even going to do it. You're too far behind. You're not going to be able to play next year. And I could tell he was hurt. Sure. So I, the first day of school That's came. a lot of news to deal with as a kid. Yeah. But somebody convinced me just go to school, catch up, just graduate. But the drinking kind of got a little more heavy. And it was, I was drinking more and more. And then I was seeing the other guys go out there and play. And I didn't handle it well. Um, It'd be tough as a teenage kid, though, to have to deal with that particular thing where you are we're on a team, you can't play, and then you see your other guys play. That That is a depressing piece of what you see. So... I think I, I can't remember exactly what happened that day or what happened, but I emptied out my locker and I took them all down to my uh, caseworker, Mary Ann Walker. I remember that she was a little short lady that everybody was just scared to death of. <laughs> and I said, here's all my books. I'm out of here. Well, we need to talk to your mom. And I said, well, you can talk to whoever. I'm out of here. And I, I gave her my books. And I mentioned her because... Later on in my story, this woman shows back up. And so I quit school. I got my GED. And there was Eric, and he's like, I know Pat McBride, and he coaches at Forest Park. Mm-hmm. Let me see if I can get you a tryout and get you on. Well, I made it. So I played one year of junior college soccer. Okay. And the drinking and the clubs and the bars. Too much. It just... And then the cocaine came in my life. Mm-hmm. And it just spiraled out of control from there. Was it the drinking and cocaine, or did one take over, cocaine took over? It was both together. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens? So I guess that I just started getting in and out of trouble. Um, stole some beer. We were having a hotel party. Stole some beer. That was a felony. Later on, I wrote some checks on my bank account. That was a felony. Uh, and then later on, a second and third DWI became another felony. So it was just... It just kept rolling. It just kept rolling. Yeah. Just trouble. Just, I was just like in a rut. Yeah. Just, and didn't see any way out of it. Just a blur. Yeah. So there's. I read this story about... Um, and I guess it would be kind of like in your... Where you were just a most maybe maybe a rock bottom moment I don't know. It was Highway Forty. You just pulled over and, and went through. I don't know how many different places that were unlocked, and uh, you were just looking for things to grab. And then I think you told me, Jim, that eventually that's what caught up with you was the yeah. whatever you grabbed the credit cards or whatever. Cocaine addiction just kind of got really out of control. And at the tune of about $500 a day. Yeah. And I just pulled over one night. I wasn't the type of person just could go up and rob somebody, I guess. I mean, I don't know. For some reason, I had this idea in my head. I'll just walk. And I started finding unlocked doors. And I would slip in and just take the money off the counter and leave. 
whatever they had in the little kitchen area and just leave. And I didn't break in. I didn't. And this is what I did to fuel my habit. Mm-hmm. And when it was all said and done, when they caught me, they said I went into close to 40 homes. And you probably didn't even realize you'd done that, had you, that many homes? I, you know what? It's, it's, it's a lot. It's all a blur yeah. to me, that whole, yeah, like you called it, it was pretty much rock bottom. Yeah. And they caught me. and You know, I was, I was at the point where, you know what? Yes, I did this. I'm done. You got me. I think it's interesting, Jim, because this, this we we were talking about this before we got on. Um, when they finally got you, it was like you were worn out. You were like, "Okay, I get it. It's me. I'm. I don't have any more fight in me. You got me." I mean, my lawyer was even mad at me. Like, don't tell them. Yeah, I mean, he, they he was screaming at me. Did you know at the time though that this was a big deal that they were going to throw a lot of years at you? Did I think it would be 25 years? No. I was thinking maybe 10 years, 15 maybe. I, I, the reason I ask you is because I I went through a situation, you know, going to sentencing, and when they said five years, it was just – I, I almost feel like I, the, the breath of my body left me because, you know, I didn't think it was going to be – the whole five. And so you're, did you have like a reaction to that as a, you know, this is going to be 25 years when you got sentenced, did you realize that that was a, that was going to be one of the things that was going to happen? Well, I actually, thought, I couldn't get my mind around that. I actually thought I was going to maybe have to do maybe half of it. Yeah. And then later on they told me, no, you're at 80% because of all your other trouble. So you're going to have to do, you're going to have to do 18 years before you're even eligible to see the parole board. I mean, that's like federal time. Federal time is 84%. Yeah. I mean, state, I you mean, can usually work yourself around. That is 80%. It doesn't matter what you do. There's nothing you can do yeah. in the state until you see the parole board. Yeah. And it was going to be 18 years. And then that same week, <laughs> same week, um, it's still hard to talk about. Um, they told me my son had like 15% chance to live. At two years old? He was four years old. Four years old. Yeah. I so, can't, I can't imagine Jim. So I think, I think at that point, the sins didn't matter. I mean, it wasn't about the 25 years. It was about, it's your only child going to live. Yeah. And <clears throat> I guess it, that was probably complete bottom for me. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I left that night and got back to Clayton, I was going to try to figure out how to just end it. You know, it was just too much. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I failed at that because they give you a razor and then you got to turn your razor back in. And I didn't know if I could do it anyway. And then the next day, no, it was probably, no, it wasn't the next day. Yeah, the next day, some detectives came and gave me some more warrants. 
just to add on to it. And then the next day, some more warrants. And then it was like the third or fourth day I was in there, they called me out to the, I guess, the rotunda or the bubble or whatever you want to call it again. And I said, you know what? I'm not going. I don't want to see any more detectives. And the sergeant came and says, no, there's someone here that wants to see you. And when I went out there, they said, uh, go in that room right over there. And I went in there, and there was like probably like six people standing in there. And this little lady steps up, and she walks up to me, and she says, do you remember me? And I said, yeah, yeah, I remember you. This was, this was my high school counselor, the one I put the books on her desk. And uh, she said, uh, I just came up here to see if you're all right. Wow. She said, I work with the women on the fourth floor. I'm retired from Lindbergh, and I help with jail ministry now. And I saw your story when I was on my treadmill last night. She said, I don't remember a lot of my students over the 30-some years she worked, but I remembered you. Mm. And it was that, after that meeting, that, you know, I just said, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to be there for my son, and I'm going to get through this. Look what he's going through. This mm-hmm. is nothing what he's, I mean. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to live a different way. Mm. And from that point on. You know, I, I think it's, Jim, I always think it's interesting hearing a story like that where you you hit that moment, and you feel that moment, and it, it's it's still you know, vivid in your mind. Cause, uh, I had uh, that moment and I don't ever forget about it and how you explain that moment. You know, exactly when it was, you know, exactly how it hit exactly. you and you changed whatever. And it, the thing about it was, is it, it wasn't that you changed and life got easier. It's just, you changed your mindset and you lived your life differently. And that's, you know, what I think is interesting about that moment is you hadn't even gone yet to prison. No, they didn't pick me up yet. It's just you decided that no matter what else happens, I'm stepping into this. I'm surviving it. Whatever I got to do, I got to be here for my kid. I got to be the dad. I got to be who I need to be regardless of where I'm at. That's, that's pretty, that's deep. Yeah. So for, I think it was probably a week later they picked me up and they took me to prison. And like Dion, you know, there's, well, you know, I mean, that first day of prison, it's weird. You know, well, walk us through that first day of prison because you, you would have been how old in your early 20s maybe? To me, it wasn't, it was bad and it, and it felt weird. But like I said, I've been in trouble two, three other times before. So... My son was like, nothing could be worse than that. Then what was you were going? And that's through. what I was focused on, and yeah. I was focused on whatever whatever they had me do. I'm going to do it. But it, I mean, it was terrible. He talked about you. They they send you in a room with a bunch of naked guys, and they spray you down, and they send you in to a housing unit, and you're there for 23 hours in that cell. And that went on for my first six months. Got an hour out a day. 
went to got three meals, and that was pretty much it. That was life. Total lockdown. And I just I just started writing letters to my son. His mom was angry. He wasn't old enough to write me back. Mm-hmm. He even says it today. I mean, he said, I got all your letters. But it was, I really wasn't in his life. Yeah. But I kept writing. And eventually I started calling. Eventually I got to talk to him. And then I guess it was five or six years later, I remember this conversation like it was yesterday. She got on the phone she's like, he wants to visit you. Mm. And that was that was our first visit. Mm. Brought him down there. He came down with my mom, his grandma. And we had a visit for the first time. So I guess that also was your motivation of, of almost like your escape with your son and, and being so locked into that. And if I understand it right, Jim, he, he overcame his first cancer and then he had another cancer. A year later, found it in his chest wall. Yeah. And then got through that, some more chemo and radiation. Then the third bout, they found it in his lung, his uh, thyroid. Thyroid, that was it. His thyroid out. But not, not really, I mean, yes, he, he was, he inspired me. But yeah. It's kind of a role reversal. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about this before with other people. He's sort of my idol. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of been reversed. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, you talked about I, 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 your podcast, how you thought your dad was greater yeah. than life. Yeah. And uh, he's greater than, than life to me. And every day I live is to be as good as he is. That's awesome. Because he's done some, he got through the cancer and he just took off. He started doing fundraisers. He got involved with Children's Miracle Network. He got on their board. He started speaking to other kids around. What a voice, too, because yeah. he's lived it. He got on all these college dance marathons, and he's raised millions of dollars for That cancer. is just so cool. So. That is just so cool. So he starts visiting you, and uh, how often do you get these visits in your life? It's not very often. I mean, he could make it down. And he, he didn't like the trips. Yeah. It was like a whole day trip to Charleston. Yeah. It's like two and a half hours down there, three hours. And then you visit for a couple hours. It it's, comes an all-day thing. Yeah. And I knew he didn't like visits. Yeah. But when we got the uh, new phone system, I was able to talk to him more. And we just connected. We found out that, you know, we liked the same things. And even though I wasn't around, I mean, we're, we're like identical. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's crazy. But it was different though, than the fact that you didn't have a dad in your life at all. Yeah. This, this is a, a, a situation where it wasn't perfect. A lot of situations and relationships aren't, but you had a connection with your son. It just wasn't the connection you wanted, but it was a real connection, yeah. which is a lot more than not having a connection at all. I looked at that and, it, it still hurt me that I put myself in that situation. Sure. And, and it wasn't there for him. Wasn't there for his, you know, first day of school. Yeah. I miss, I miss so Well, you can't get any of that back. You can't get any of it You back. know, I, I miss graduations and stuff. And it's like, 
people don't realize, you know, until they've gone through that, how much that means to you that you did miss it. You know, I had these moments where I'm sitting with my family and I'm just thinking, thank God I'm here. You know, my oldest daughter just had her uh, twins, boys, and a lot of the uh, emotion that I have is just, thank God I'm here, I'm not there. Because yeah. I love this experience so much. How, how much do I, I can't even put words to it. But I think those are things that you get when you've experienced something like that, when you get on the outside, is, is that doesn't go away. Those moments actually do come to you and think, wow, thank God I'm here. I, thank God I'm here. So going back into, Jim, you're because 20 years you're living a life there. I mean, you're this is, you know, however you do what you do. I mean, the first thing is you don't want to lose yourself. You want to still be yourself. What did you do strategies-wise to stay you? Well, my strategy was to stay busy. And I worked several prison jobs. I was involved with programs, with with treatment, with AA. Yeah. Anything that I could do. But it does make the day go faster when you're staying it, busy. It does. You don't and, want to sit. And I I think for me, the adjustment came with with sports. Yeah, I mean, at Charleston, being a new facility, we it was like brand new when we got down there. Even though it was maximum security, we got out a lot, and we had we had softball leagues, mm-hmm. we had handball, and we worked out and we ran. But just the guys, I hung with the guys that that played sports mm-hmm. and worked during the day, and we'd play in the evenings and. Did you have some good guys you hung out with? I did. Yeah. Yeah, there was there's there's some really good guys in there. Yeah. And I think Dion touched on it a little yeah. bit because we're around guys that these guys have life without parole. Yeah. They wake up in the morning and they're happier than I am. Mm-hmm. And someday I'm gonna get to go home, even though it didn't seem like it. Yeah. I'm on like year eight and I still gotta go to twenty. But these guys are this is their life. Mm-hmm. And it's some of the greatest guys that I met. Yeah. Along the way. Like, you'd meet these guys and you would never think that he's going to be here. He's going to die in here. He's going to die in here. Yeah. So, yeah, I made some some good friendships in there, some good people. But I, my, I still had it in my mind. I had to get back to school. Yeah. You know, I wanted to... It hurt me that I always had to tell people that I quit school. Mm-hmm. And, but there just wasn't any opportunities. There really wasn't any opportunities the first, what, 14 years. Yeah. To really, I mean, I was better in myself with my sobriety and my thinking and being a better person. But there was going to come a day where I was going to get out. Mm-hmm. And what was I going to do? And it was scary. So I ended up doing 12 years there in Charleston and finally got my level dropped, and they moved me to Pacific, Missouri Eastern Correctional Center. Which would have been a lot closer to uh, it's about 25 miles out of St. Louis. Yeah. Yes. I was able to see my son more yeah. in those six years there, and I felt closer. And would home. he have been like a teenager then? Yeah. 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 He, he went through SLU High School. Yeah. And then he went, he's got two years of big slew now. 
but then COVID hit and he just couldn't do the online classes. Yeah. A lot of people couldn't. So he's in what he's doing. He's in tech now, what he likes to do. Yeah. Music and sound and he's doing real well, but he eventually wants to go back and finish. Yeah. So I'm there at Pacific and I guess it was about a year and a half after I was there. I see this flyer on the wall that Washington University is going to start classes, but it was like liberal arts and it was like Shakespeare and it's just, no, this is not what I wanted. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, to back you up a little bit, I ended up, Marianne ended up passing away, my high school counselor, and which really hurt. Mm. Did you stay in touch with her while you were in prison? All the time. She'd come visit. Oh, it's she unreal. She became like my go So she's checked up on you. Always. Wow. Giving me advice, had me journaling, had me mm. setting up a vision board and think. That's incredible. I'm glad we didn't miss this and leave this yeah, out. <laughs> we almost did. But yeah, she was, she was kind of. What a big part of your life at that point. It was huge. I mean, she inspired me to reach that level. And it hurt. I got to uh, talk to her. Well, the way her brother describes it is she didn't die until she talked to me. Mm. It's like she was waiting to talk to me before she left. So I did get to say goodbye to her over the phone. So then her brother and his wife said they want to come visit me. And I guess she asked her brother if anything ever happened to make sure that. Had you ever met him? No, never. Wow. I heard about him. Yeah. Um, His name. It's Wayne and Mary Walker. So she handed the baton over to her, her she brother. She didn't just leave me. <laughs> Something else. And, what a what an incredible person. And we'll get into that relationship a little bit later. But so I see this flyer on the wall and I go back and there's like two days before the application's gotta be in. And I called Wayne. This was into our relationship. I called Wayne and I told him about it. And he's like, Isn't this the very thing? that you've been wanting. Mm-hmm. And so that night, I just, I couldn't sleep that night. I'm like, you just made an excuse for the very thing that you've been fighting mm-hmm. for the Department of Corrections to do for yeah, for higher education. So next day, I did my application and was accepted into Washington University program. Which is huge. (laughs) Washington University, for people who are listening who don't know of Washington University, it's known as the Harvard of the Midwest. It's it's a very uh, esteemed, top-notch, respected college, university. Yeah, so I went to – you had to do, like, two essays and had to answer some questions, and then, then I was interviewed by, like, four tenured professors. These weren't just, like, rookie professors they brought on. They're the real deal. These were the real deal. (laughs) And somehow, some way, I got accepted. I just told my story. Well, the good thing was is it was essays. That's what us left-handers like. We we (laughs) like the essays. We don't like the standardized. (laughs) Right. That's right. And my son doesn't like them either. (laughs) And they accepted me. 
and then the fear came in. Like, what have I done? What have I done? What am I going to do? I yeah. mean, this is Washington University. How, how am I going to do this? And they set me up with an advisor. When they, when you interviewed with the professors, did were they there? Did they come yeah, to the prison? This was in person. They came to the prison. It was wow. It was almost like a parole hearing. It's what it would have looked like, like a panel. Yeah. They'll be mad at me for saying that. That's, but, that's what it would have been. But it been. was a panel. And right. They, and they were really friendly and, I mean, just just seemed like really good. Yeah. And so your fear set in after this and they accept you. Yeah. They, and so you're like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? Then what did you, you – you, well, you didn't back up from it. I don't remember the numbers, but not many were accepted out of the applications. Yeah. So I'm thinking to myself, like, you can't screw this up because, and you got to do this because you're you're taking a spot from somebody else. Yeah. And so they only had a couple classes, and it was a pilot program. And so I took public speaking, smart, and and drama. Yeah. With Professor Whitaker. Yeah. And he's he was great, and. I think it's one of the best things you can take in business, by the way. <laughs> I think I think acting, theater, and directing, being a director, is one of the two best things that you could do if you just want to go into business because it takes all the whatever out of you. And then directing gives you the ability to persuade, create, and and have a – scene where you have people do what they need to do and it's believable and that's what you need in a company. Right. But it's so cool that you did that. So you, so did, was that all online? Is that how you did no, that? These professors came in, they came to the prison, They came to the prison. And instead of like normal college where you do an hour, three times yeah. a week, we would do the whole three hours and one chunk. Wow. So they didn't have to drive. Sure. Three days a week. Yeah. It, what was, Crazy about this, and everybody knows St. Louis is small, but my son was at SLU. Not to keep going back to my son, but I love talking about him. That's a, it's a good story. Professor Whitaker's wife worked in the theater at SLU High School. Wow. Where Zach was doing the lighting and sound to help pay for his education. And then your professor was her husband? Yes. <laughs> that is small So we connected. Yeah. We connected. And he was great. And they assigned me Professor Jamie Ake. As my advisor. Yeah. And he, knowing that I like sports, he assigned me this project to do a play of these three retired, or not retired, three umpires. One was getting ready to retire and two rookie umpires. Mm -hmm. And that was the play. And I was scared. Public speaking scared me. Sure, at all. This play stuff scared me. But she made me rehearse. And she would clear the room out, and I tell the story all the time. Yeah. And say, no, who cares we're missing an actor? I'll play him. <laughs> and and it, just, it just became like a community, and yeah, and the program just kept getting bigger and bigger, and then the associate's degree was put in place, and that was the first graduation in 2018, and I graduated with my associate's degree. Incredible. And then as the story goes on, Right before my release. So let me ask you something. The, the associate's degree at that point, was that was at the end of the program at that point? The bachelor's degree was later as they 
continue to grow the program? Is that what they well, were that's doing? That's what I thought. I said, okay, cool, school's done. Yeah. But Professor Egg said, no, school is not finished. We just, we're just getting started. <laughs> yeah, we're just getting started. <laughs> so, yeah, later on they accredited the bachelor's degree. Okay. And they brought on more professors, and professors started to want, want to come to teach there. So they what's the talk? What's it. what's the talk in the prison about this? Because this is something outside, being brought inside, which is always something us prisoners talked about. Leavenworth, if somebody came inside, it was the talk. I mean, one time they had um, a big thing for the Catholics, and and uh, it, it was there were people brought in, and and they had this service, and it was a big deal. So what was the talk in, in prison about this whole program going on? Well, I mean, the guys that were in it loved it. Yeah. I mean, it was structured. We were going to classes. We were doing regular studies. Yeah. We were doing papers. We got a computer lab put in. You're locked in. We're locked in. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're talking about, for one class, you're talking about 10, 15, 20 Yeah. You guys are killing home. real time. This yeah, is killing time. They're teaching the same class to us as they're teaching. They're teaching at, the at school. Yeah, on the on the grounds. It's not easy. No. But uh I don't, I don't know, it's kind of mixed like with the staff and stuff it was kind of mixed. Mhm. I think there was a lot of maybe some well I'm paying for my son's school. How are you guys getting free yeah. school? Yeah. That's what they but right from the beginning Washington University offered classes for staff as well. Really? Yes, they would offer, and still to this day, offer classes for the staff. That's and pretty I, incredible, isn't it? Well, it's kind of genius to me. Yeah. Like, you knew ahead of time that they weren't going to yeah. like this, but let's offer it to them as well. Did anybody take them up on that? There was a few. Yeah, okay. I think they got a few, not as, you know, as much as we wanted it. Yeah. But. Well, one of the things that they talk about in there, and I, I know you hard to pat yourself on the back but i'll do it for you they they talked about how you specifically you really took this on so so you know serious about what you were doing and and really very responsible about the whole program that that really got other people locked into it and and really wanted to be good also because you you were you were doing it in a way that it was inspiring other people to be a part of the program which is cool because we're going to talk more about that as, as you've gotten out. But you were doing that on the inside, Jim. And I always think people doing it on the inside is such a big deal because you're in a bad place. And people who make change happen on the inside, it's, it's like I was telling Dion uh, the other day about the guy, that the old, the old prisoner that talked about the, the boiling pot and what's the boiling pot do, what's the water do to the carrot It makes it soft. What's the water do to the uh, egg? It makes it hard. Well, you can't be soft and you can't be have a hard heart in uh, prison. But what does the coffee bean do when you drop it on the water, boiling water? And the guy Damon said, uh, I don't know. He said, well, he said, it changes the water to coffee. He said, that's what you want to be in prison. You want to change the water, not the water change you. And I think that's interesting, such an interesting analogy for so many reasons. There's a guy who wrote the book called The Coffee Bean. It's all about that. They had been in prison. But what you did, what you were doing, Jim, is you changed the water in prison. And if you've ever been in prison, it's not easy to change the water in there. Uh, things are institutionalized. You've got um, 
everybody sits in the same spot. Everybody does the same thing every day. Everybody's in their habits and, and they're almost get to the point where you get into your habits so much. You're afraid to get out of that. Even if it's good, even if it's free, even if they're telling you to get out early, it scares people. So I think it's cool that you, you took on something brand new, uh, championed it and really got more people involved probably that would have been into it. And you're following up now that you're out, which we'll get into, but, um, so you are, do you take this all the way up to the time that you get out? Yeah. I'm, I'm in three classes and doing my capstone. Okay. When I'm released. As you're getting released. My last. This is, this is it. This is it. So I get released in the midst of this. And Wash, you already had it set up where I could finish online with my professors. And yeah. I was doing my capstone with my advisor. Yeah. So... I finish up and I graduate with everybody else on the football field. On the here. real football field, it was it was a pretty incredible day. Okay, let's back up because <laughs> I'm I'm not going to be able because I want to go into that because, but before you ever do that, you served 20 years in prison. You finally get to the point where you're going to be released. What what's going through your head? What what's what's going into your mind? 20 years. 20 years and you're going to walk out the door tomorrow. I'll tell you what I was, I was scared. I yeah. mean, there was, there was a lot of different emotions. I'm, I know I need to finish school. Um, you know, when I went in, we had flip phones and pagers, right? And if you had internet at home, you, you had some money. You're walking in tall cotton. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a whole new technology. So many unknowns. And I've been gone 20 years. So much has changed in St. Louis. Yeah. And I'm, I, I can't really describe how I really. Who's don't. on the other side? When you get, you get out of there that day, you get your, your walking papers to, to walk out that door. Who's on the other side for you? Wayne and Mary are there. Wow. My mom's there. Yeah, it was, it was pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. And you got out of there quick. Yes. <laughs> got in the car and got out of there quick. What'd you do? What'd you do right after that? Well, go back to Eric Delavar. Yeah. He had it set up with one of his friends that had a barbecue place and they had a little big barbecue thing and some That's of the professors cool. showed up and yeah, it was it was pretty neat. So pretty everybody special. was met at this barbecue my, place. My son was there, my sister, my mom. Yeah, everybody was there. That had to be just, uh, you probably, it was just a blur to you. Yeah. Yeah, it had to be. To just, I mean, to, and there's some kind of weird feeling when you walk through those doors and it's, it's a, because you've gone to prison, your family's gone to prison because they've had to mm-hmm. deal with it all. And everybody feels like this sense of relief, but almost like a sense of accomplishment too. We made it. You know, it's a strange thing, but you're like, Whatever happened, whatever we had to go through, we're all here. We made it. And you guys had to have felt that way when you were at that barbecue restaurant. It was. It was pretty special. And especially my mom and I, I mean, our relationship just kind of took off. Yeah. Like the last, I guess, probably last five years I was in there. Yeah. We just got really close. My son and I got really close. So it was Mm. just Eric and I, Eric used to bring me food on food visits and come visit me and Wayne and Mary. I mean, it was just like I had a whole new 
Sorry. Now, Wayne and Mary are the ones that got handed the baton, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. To, to make sure that they watched after you. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's let's go. Let's step into. So you, um, how how soon after the barbecue is the football walk of your graduation? Well, I got out November 29th, and the graduation which was is very May. strange. It's the same day I got out. I know <laughs> that's very weird. We'll figure that out. <laughs> but uh, it was that May. That May. Yeah. So did you between that time period? Um living, working, what did you do as soon as you got out? Well, I had a struggle with my license. Yeah. Over the DWIs from twenty two years ago. Yeah. They made me go back to court. They made me fight Department of Revenue. We talked about also this. cost money. Cost a lot of money. Um, but my sponsor who used to come into the AA meetings at Pacific had a construction business. And his warehouse just happened to be right down the street from where I was living. And he hired me. That's awesome. Mark Wilkins. My uh, Good job, Mark. My, my sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> we got to get him in there. No, I mean, that's, that's the kind he, of stuff that you need. He gave me that start. And he was all about in those meetings. I mean, what if he Mark Wilkins me, doesn't walk in and, and give you a hand? He was on me about get that plan together. Yeah. Yeah. And he did 12 years in federal prison. Yeah. Get the plan together. Get it together. Have a plan. And I was adamant about having a plan and a vision of what I wanted to do. Man, that's so big, though, Jim. I mean, a lot of people say, yeah, you know, it's kind of corny, you know, because I've always, I've even said this to my daughters, you know, if you, if you write it down, you know, here's your, here's your vision and here's your plan and it'll work. Because it's it's so much more effective if you write it down and you feel it, you know it, I, and do it. I, when I was younger, I thought it was all BS. But yeah. I'm going to tell you what, if you get put a plan together and you just go after, you start it, living it. Then you, it's it, real. When yes. you put it in, you put it down on paper, it's real. You put it in your head, yeah, maybe. So he put me to work, and you know he was at the end. He's he's kind of at the end of getting ready to retire, but he kept he kept me working while I was working at getting my license back yeah. and just figuring out the world and the technology. And I can't imagine what you thought of a <laughs> smartphone or an iPhone or an Android. It was weird, man. I just, I talk about it still to this day. Like you can't even talk to anybody. Everybody's walking around with a computer. Yeah. Like where'd the conversation <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> everybody's looking at their phone. They get all these notifications. They're just looking at their phone the whole time. And everybody's texting me like, will you quit calling me? I'm like, isn't that what you do? No, we text now. We don't, we don't This phone's not for phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll quit calling. So I learned how to be a pretty good texter. That's now, so. funny. That's funny. So you get that job, which was a fantastic thing. Then you, oh, it was great. It was great. He really helped me out. And that kind of kept my plan yeah. going. Calm things down a little bit in your mind. Yeah. You've got this, you got a guy that believes in you. Now you've got a graduation ceremony that you're going to be a part of on the actual football field with all the other students and your family's going to be there, mm -hmm. which they can be really proud of that because it's quite an accomplishment. I imagine yeah. you had your family all there to, to celebrate. I'll tell you what, it was the first time I really saw my mom proud. Oh. You know what I mean? 
I disappointed her so many times. And that was probably the biggest takeaway of graduation, mm. seeing my mom, you know, because I hurt her so much. And she was so proud. That was worth it. Ah. That, yeah. Making me teary-eyed here, yeah, Jim. Okay, I'm so. I'm saying, that just made it. So, yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine being that, that moment for you guys to share that moment. Cause I even think they took a picture of that moment somewhere along there in the, in the newspaper article where you're hugging her. Yeah. Yeah. And then you and Zach get to share that moment. I mean, yeah. so yeah, it's just, it's just, uh, that's the was, good stuff. He was proud of me. He's like, you got to keep going. Yeah. This is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's talk about, cause I, I got so fascinated with your story. We were just talking on the phone the other day and, and, and we probably could have talked for an hour. Um, fill us in on what you're doing now. Cause I think it's just so <laughs> cool that you stepped into these different things that, that, I mean, you've been out two years. Yeah. So let, let's go into what you're doing now. Well, first, uh, my advisor, who's also helps run the program and helps started the Washington University program. And I, I just want to say this. I wouldn't, I don't believe that I'd be anywhere close to where I am right now so quickly and so effectively without Washington University and that program. Yeah. And I'm a firm believer, and a lot of people might not agree with it, prisoners getting education. But we've, they've tried everything mm -hmm. or tried what they think works. Yeah. I'm going to tell you what, higher education is the key to getting out of this. Breaking the cycle. Breaking it. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Without a doubt. Well, I think it does a couple of things for you, too. I mean, obviously the discipline thing or the habits, but I think it gives you confidence, doesn't it? Just the fact that it, you did it. And and uh, that's, that's walk the, through it. It is. It's, yeah. it's the thinking and all the hours of studying yeah. and papers and and yeah. Yeah, and, you got to keep just, gritting it through. And just the confidence. And I, I talked about it in another interview. Is like I can do whatever anybody else is doing mm -hmm. in this city. Now I have the degree. Right. Yes, I still have the past, but I can. My actions can get past my past. That's right. Windshield's I, I, a lot bigger than the rearview mirror. That's right. That's right. And you're missing out if you yeah. don't get me. Right. And that's my thinking. Yeah. And so the first thing that happened is they offered me a job at WashU. And how cool is that? Because oh. you actually walked through those steps. So why shouldn't you be part of that job? Because you know and, and inspired other people to be part of that program. So, I mean, it's just. So the alumni coordinator position came open, and I applied for it. Yeah. For our program. And I got it. And so you're you're actually on the staff at Washington University. I am. <laughs> That's so cool. Washington University. That's so cool. Yes. And my job is it's stressful. Yeah. But it's rewarding. And it, it, like you've talked about, it's what I what I was doing in there. I was kind of being an example and a mm -hmm. mentor and. You know, I help guys do a lot of things, and a lot of the students help me get through a lot of things, too. Yeah. We just kind of work together at it. But these guys are coming out, and I help them in any way I can. So you kind of like an accountability coach for them? Kind of, and we have a check-in meeting every Wednesday. We have a Zoom meeting, mm -hmm. and it's kind of just a place to come. And What's going on? Yeah. 
how was your how was your week how was your day what are you going through mm-hmm. and i guess we have about it's probably good to do for any company by yeah. the way how is everybody and i mean we have some we have some guys out here in our wall street program doing amazing things we have harvey Galler who's started a he's co-founder of a st louis collective that's helping with different issues with with prison mass incarceration uh addiction just wow whole lot of how long has he been out he's been out a little bit longer than i have yeah we need to talk to harvey you do yeah and jameel span he's he's preparing for law school it's georgetown or somewhere like yeah. that i don't I, exactly. I, 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 was, I just remember I, reading in the uh the post article that it was, somebody was thinking about going to georgetown i don't know yeah i mean and jacob bitters he just got out he's he's already doing some amazing work he's with this launch code company that's kind of side by side with us. They're teaching uh, coding in prison. So these guys are getting out and they're they're stepping in the right direction, breaking oh, they, the cycle, and doing the right thing. They are. That's awesome. And Kevin Hammerschmidt, he's working as a paralegal and started a painting company, and he's doing. That's things. awesome. I love it. Talk about the dogs. <laughs> the dogs. <laughs> Because I'm not a good trainer of dogs. I love dogs, but I've, <laughs> well, I, I told to, you about I, Stanley. Yeah, I love talking about dogs. I can talk about dogs. But you know what I can we tell you? I, what I can tell dogs. you? Well, I, what I can tell you about this though, Jim? I do have a special connection to Stanley because he went three years in a cage in a prison with no name and a number, and this dog and I really connect. And and granted, he's not well trained. But he's the most loving dog I've ever come across. So the training part, I'll leave to you, Jim, at some yeah, point. Make at sure some you get card after <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but through. talk to me about the dogs. Well, there was a program. They're pretty much in every prison in Missouri. It's yeah. called Puppies for Parole. Um, it's one of the probably, to me, and I'm kind of biased, but it's probably the best program that the state offers. Because mm-hmm. not only. I'm surprised he got this far. That they actually did it. Me too. I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah. So a lot of people in St. Louis know about Stray Rescue. Mm-hmm. Great people. Great, great place. They actually are the sponsor at the one at Pacific. They bring their dogs from Stray Rescue into Pacific Prison. And they used to bring in each session, we'd have probably anywhere from five to ten dogs show up at the prison. And we would take these dogs for three months, 24 hours a day. We have a kennel in our cell. And it's funny, we, when, I, when I talk to other people, my dogs went to classes with me. They went to Wash U classes. Wow. And they would do training classes twice a week. And they would teach us how to train and how to take care of these dogs. And it's, it's the greatest program because it, it, te- it gets you out of yourself. Yeah. And focusing on them, you're responsible for this dog. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's great. It teaches empathy. It it does just so much. Now, did these dogs graduate out of the program? I mean, do you train a dog and that dog leaves? We teach basic obedience. There's 10 elements of the, because I would get attached to the dog. Canine good citizenship test. There's 10 elements and they have to pass that. And we have three months to do it. Wow. And in the beginning of this program, we got dogs that, you know, Stray Rescue is a no-kill shelter. Mm-hmm. These dogs would 
some of these dogs would stay in the kennel the rest of their lives. They mm. weren't adoptable. And to bring that dog in, and like my first one, and to hand that off to a family after mm. three months and be comfortable about it. And that dog had a life sentence. Yes. And we turned him around. Yeah. And how cool is that? I did this like what, 16. Was it sad to give away the dog that you trained, though? The f- but I guess you knew he was the going to a nice place. couple and a few towards the middle. I did 16 of them. That's a lot of dogs. It's a lot of dogs. But I, they taught me so much. Yeah. And I got out. And I thought about doing some training. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was it was in my plans to have a, have a training business. Mm-hmm. But I started getting phone calls. Like one, one guy in there that wasn't in the program. His name was Mark Frisella. And the Frisellas are well-known in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And one of their Frisellas are in prison. And he, was in, he, was, he did a lot of time with me. Mm-hmm. And he saw how I was with these dogs. And he would always compliment me and tell me what this guy's doing, how this guy could be better. He was just one of those guys. Yeah. But when I got out, two of his sisters called me. And... That's how it kind of took off. Just by word of mouth. Yeah, just by word of mouth. And then I put a little website together and... Away you went. Away I went. So you're, I mean, you're in the process of taking it to another level, though. Um, can you talk about that or is it too early? No, I can I can talk about yeah. how scary it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've... The nightmare uh, part of it. <laughs> the nightmare <laughs> part of it. I'm looking at a building near the new Crestwood development because my neighborhood is important. The neighborhood that my trouble started yeah. is the neighborhood that I want my business. Yeah, you're coming full circle. Yes. Yeah. I get it. But it's so expensive. Yeah. And times are so strange. Strange right now. But I want to have an indoor training facility with a doggy daycare. And I want to hire guys that you these dog trainers, the best yeah. dog trainers by far, that you probably know, in the country. You know they learned how to do it. Yeah, they do it twenty four hours a day. Right, and I'd have an advantage. And, and what a great love, and people would love these guys. And what a great situation too for somebody coming out and having something that they know that they know. I mean, they know they're good at it because that's what they've done. You know, twenty four hours a day is train. It's. I love the idea. I hope, Jim, that it, it all comes about because um, that's just another stepping stone for all the different things that are going on, like the Washington University things. All those things help get people back in, plugged into their second chance or whatever that is. I was going to ask you, though, com- coming out 20 years in, coming out, what what was what was some of the – tougher things about getting plugged back in just to society. Well, a lot of things are still the same. Yeah. Not much. I mean, there's some technology things. is probably the biggest technology change. was the biggest one for me. Yeah. It still is to this yeah. day. That's a tough one. And really it's just some new roads and some new neighborhoods and yeah, but not that, 
once you were out, you didn't feel like, oh, my God, I've walked into the Jetsons. You just felt like there's a lot of technology differences. Everybody's looking at their phone, well, and, and they're not calling me anymore. They're texting kind of me. It's kind of funny. I walked out, and I walked out into COVID, so. Oh, yeah. That's a, you walked out, and everybody, everybody else was shut down. Wait a minute. I'm supposed to be free. Yeah. And everybody's in their house acting like they're in their own lockdown. That had to be a weird time to get out of prison. It It was. It was it was tough because I wanted to I wanted to go out and explore places and everybody's like no you can't I mean people aren't going to these places and that amount of time did you stay in touch with friends and people that you knew before you went in or have you started kind of a whole new life after you've gotten out that that is the biggest thing for me that I feel my opinion to success is you have to build a whole new circle. No, I didn't. Not my Lindbergh people, my Lindbergh family, that I call them. Yeah. They're great. Yeah. I'm on Facebook with sure. them, and it's been great. To, those people didn't yeah. steer me. I did that outside yeah. of. They were supportive, right? They And they're supportive today. Yeah. Um, But, no, the, the old contacts, you got to let those. No, I forgot about those mm-hmm. from day one. When I told you day one, that's when all that just stopped. Yep. And I was going to change. Because I, I think we get in a, we get in a rut, mm-hmm. and that's what it is. And, it's, and it gets comfortable. Yeah, I had a friend draw this field. Mm-hmm. He just drew, he drew it in the dirt one time at prison for me, mm-hmm. and I'll never forget it. It was a wheat field. And he drew this line in the corner of it, a little road, and just the corner of this big square he made. And he said, you know what's on that road? He said, the jails are on that road, the bars are on that road, the, the lies, everything bad is on that road. Mm-hmm. But it's the road we know. Right. And that's why there's a rut in it. We always go back to the road we know. Yeah. And there's all this beautiful land out here. Yeah. That we haven't even touched. Touched. Yeah. Because that's the road we go to for everything. Yeah. And ever since he drew that, I knew that I had to stay away from that road. Yeah. And everything on that road. You had to go the road you didn't know. That's right. And that's the part that is, you know, we talk about this all the time in the podcast. That's the road that's not the easiest road, but that's probably going to get you where you want to go. And it's, it's over, under, around it, on top of it. You got to get through it somehow. But when you do, man, what a feeling that is. You set yourself yeah. free. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So I also have a day job. Yes, you do. I have a day and job. And you've done great at that. <laughs> it's, yes, it's financially, it's been really good for me. And I hope they don't get mad at me talking about them, but. They'll probably, hey. they've given you an opportunity. <laughs> they sure did. But Crossroads Courier, they they wanted to hear my story. What happened? Mm-hmm. What got you in trouble? What was your thinking? And what's going to be different? Mm-hmm. And I told them, a whole lot's different. And this is what happened. And this is how I'm going to be. And this is who I am. This is who I am. Yeah. And next day, they gave me a shot. And that was about, what, going on a year and a half with them now. 
and I'm probably one of their top drivers now. And you put in a lot of work too. You know that that's the the other part we can't discount on, out of this is that you put in a lot of work with them. Uh, you took the opportunity, but you were there. You know, get up at four o'clock every morning and get there at five five thirty, and you're ready to hit it. Um, you you grabbed onto that opportunity, and that's that's impressive because you know we were on the second chance panel here the week or two ago, and um, there were employers there. And I think uh, one of the things they were saying, which I think is important, because the employer wants to hire. They, they've said, like, uh, there was a guy here from BJ, BJC that said, we'll hire. We're, we've, we've knocked out the whole thing of the X-Phone. We, we want to hear the story and want to hire the right people. The thing is being able to tell that story, to be your authentic self and tell them how you have been where you were and where you are now and how you are the person you are. They want that. You just got to have that. You got to, like the guy said in the audience, you got to grab the job. And you grab the job. They gave you the opportunity, but you grab the job, and now you've taken the opportunity and run with it and taken on more and more responsibility. And that's really what that's all about is having the foot in the door, being prepared for it, and then when you get it, you blow it out. You're better than everybody because you're working harder and you get after it. That's what's cool. Yeah. Yeah. You haven't wasted it. I do feel like that we have to work twice as hard. Yeah. To get, and I and that was in my plan. Yeah. I always said that I have to work twice as hard as everybody else. I think that that's a realistic expect expectation because you can't. It's almost like it's tattooed on you. You're not getting away from that. What you can do is be a person that people believe in uh, because of your actions, but you'll always have the ex-felon, ex-inmate, previous life, previously incarcerated, whatever that, however you want to label yourself. Uh, as much as we change or want to get past that, that's there. But what you've done, though, Jim, is you've taken it and you've applied it, and all those experiences have made you an even more interesting person that people want to be around or employ or have their dogs trained by or any of those things or be an accountability coach that people say, Hey, I want to know what Jim thinks. And Jim's going to give me feedback on that. You can't take that away. You can't take away the brain. And as long as you get your brain functioning, you don't give up. The only way you give up is quit. Right. So, um, you've, that's, I think the inspiring part of your story is, is you said day one, not one day. And, Day one is a series of steps. You just got to keep it is going. It's it's daily. Yeah, it's one day at a time. Yeah, and that's how I did it, one day at a time, for twenty years. It's just amazing to think that you did twenty years and walked out, and you've hit the pavement so fast and making so many good uh, decisions that affect positive change is just. uh, If you look back on everything. You know, you had the angry kid growing up that, that was missing his dad. You make this strong connection once you're in prison, and you and Zach, you know, make and all these different relationships that interconnected through your 20 years of what you've been through and the life before that. To the listeners out there, what what's the biggest takeaway from all that that you would impart to them about how you made it? I think 
no matter well for my biggest thing is it never it's never too late yeah it's never too late to put a plan together and execute it it may like when i when i went to prison when i was in that burglarizing them homes i didn't see any way out i thought i was so deep within that there was just no escape yeah when i was taken out of society and put in that bunk in that jail cell and i looked back there was just two or three little things that i had to do and i could have changed my life right then yeah it wasn't a big deal Mm -mm. but i think we get so caught up in the rut yes in the rut and it's really it's really not a rut it just takes making a couple little changes for me it was it was getting sober Mm -hmm. and wanting to live a different way yeah and not being that person who i used to be yeah and i think the biggest takeaway is if if you're in that rut and there's a lot of people out here sure that are in that rut that's never seen a prison right but they're in a deeper prison than i was for 20 years yeah I think I see that too. When you get out, you see there's a lot of institutionalized people that won't, they have blinders on and they can't see what they're missing. I think that's huge advice. It's not ever too late. It just takes action. It's not ever too late. It's not. It's never too late. And I think that for people out there looking for hope or inspiration, the, the idea that time hasn't passed you by Day one is so much different than one day. And as long as you're willing to just do it, what you just said, Jim, action. Yeah. Action can solve a lot of things if you do the right steps. Yeah. And they say you're 50, 51 years old now. I said, no, really, I'm 31. You know, that, that 20 years, that's yeah. frozen. <laughs> that's frozen in time. You're 31 so years 30. old. <laughs> I'm going to do this like I'm 30. I love it. <laughs> what do you think you appreciate the most about being out? Well, I'll, after all that, time. everybody knows I'm going to say food. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, food's a big deal. No, but honestly, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to say my relationships with my family, yeah. my friends, and I appreciate the guy I am now. Yeah, I can wait. I can wake up when I'm brushing my teeth in the morning. And I don't hate that guy that I'm seeing in that mirror. Yeah, because there was many years where. I, you couldn't tell it. I'd put on these different facades, and but I hated that guy. Yeah, I hated him. Now you wake up and you feel good, and you're passionate about certain. Now things I'm proud like, of him. Yeah, but you can do better than you did yesterday. Yeah, we can do better today. Yeah, and I just try to do that. Man, just an incredible story, Jim. I mean, it really is. I, I so appreciate you being a guest here because I think people need to hear these kind of stories because I think it gives them whatever that is, that intangible thing to grab onto and do something for themselves. And and you haven't had an easy road, but you've kept walking that road and it, it got better for you. And that's just that's so such a good story. Hey, if they're in a rut or their dog in a rut, I'd love to talk. <laughs> there it is. I'd love to talk to them. <laughs> that's, that sounds, right. That sounds like a good slogan <laughs> right there for your website. Hey, if anybody is still looking for a book out there, uh, I wrote one. Uh, it's nightmare success. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, the likes, uh, if you go to Spotify or, uh, Apple hit the, the, uh, subscription or the follow button, 
that'll alert you when uh, every week when it comes out, and you can see what the episode descriptions are. Anybody leave a review? I love those. Uh, anybody wants to go to BrentCassidy.com, leave me a message, check me out. As I always said when I was writing my letters from uh, Leavenworth, stay strong and I'll do the same. Nightmare success, in and out. Thank you, Jim Brock.